First of all, thank you very much for coming. Thank you for coming. Number two, thank you to Rabbi Ramon and to Rabbi Shon for inviting me here to speak. It's, it's quite a nachas to be in the shul, to see what Rabbi Ramon has accomplished with, with, together with his wife. Uh, we go back 18 years? 18 years. So it's a tremendous, tremendously pleasurable. And Rabbi Shon, Baruch Hashem, is here now as well. And uh, to see the, the nachas of a Rebbe, to see what Talmudim are accomplishing is a tremendous thing. We should always have tremendous nachas from our, from our children, from our Talmudim, from ourselves. I think Rashim used, used to say we should have nachas from ourselves, the Russians should have nachas from us. Okay, so the topic is Shalom Bayis. Uh, Shalom Bayit. Am I speaking Bivrit? No? No. I can say the I can say the whole okay. Okay. I can't promise no Yiddish. Okay. I once gave my wife and I once gave a session on this topic in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we were there for a, a summer program, a seed program in Dayton, Ohio, and this is 1993. And the rabbi was this very dynamic, outgoing, exciting rabbi, and he asked, asked me beforehand, would I be willing to give a session? Would my wife and I be willing to give a session on the topic of Shalom Bayez? I said, no problem, happy to do that. So I get there, and there's the sign about the, the, the topic. So it's going to be in this young couple, these neophyte Froom couple, living in this fancy uh, apartment complex, and they're inviting all of their close friends, and who are not Froom yet. And the topic, is going to be a topic that he wanted to put a fancy title on it, and I look at the title, and my heart goes to my toes. So the, type, the title is Love, Jewish Style. Every, a free will discussion of everything you wanted to know about love, dating, and marriage. And this is what it says. And my wife and I look at each other and say, we are in trouble. This is going to be very challenging. So uh, we decided that the best defense is a good offense um, in this situation. And we decided to take the bull by the horns and make sure that we get going. To make sure that this session goes exactly where we want it to go. So we started the session with the following question. We asked everybody. We gave everybody a piece of paper and a pencil. We gave them somebody to take a minute at the beginning of the of the session. We want, everybody should fill in the blank with a word or a phrase. Marriage is. You know, you get these little cards, happiness is, dot, 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 you know, a warm, you know, smile, right? happiness is, a, fu- a furry cat, you know, right? a, 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 a dandelion, I don't know, whatever, whatever the happiness is, so happiness is, so marriage is, that was the question that we put out to the crowd, so I'm going to do the same thing to you, and I'm going to ask you if somebody has the, has the, Temerity. Uh, somebody has the guts to get up and say a one word or possibly a phrase. Marriage is. Fill in the blank. Respect. Respect. Excellent. Lady side, please. Connection. Connection. Excellent. Yes. Partnership. Marriage is partnership. Beautiful. Giving. I'm sorry? Giving. Marriage is giving. Excellent. Commitment. Commitment. Beautiful. Okay, we have beautiful answers over here. Uh, the answer which I'm going to give, I think, will maybe touch on some of the points that have been mentioned. And let's see if we can do something with it. Marriage is, is an opportunity. 
Marriage is an opportunity to, opportunity to become a giver. The Mithra Yol Rudessa writes that the, the most defining elements of what a person is about is becoming a giver as opposed to being a taker. Because who made man, the child is born, he is a taker. He's dependent, totally dependent on others. He must take. He focuses himself. It's the middle of the night, and he's hungry. In the middle of the night, and he's thirsty, or he's wet. See, he screams. We would say, excuse me, young man, uh, your parents are sleeping. You know, that's not very nice that you're interrupting your parents' sleep because you're hungry. And that's what a child does. The child focuses on himself. That's all he's about. The child gets a little bit older, and we start training the child to think about others, be aware of others. And it's, a, it's training, the, moving the process from a person being one who's focused totally on oneself to learn to be focused outward. But a Kodesh who is one who focuses on others. A Kodesh Baruch is a giver. And if we want to connect to the Bariya Olam, to the Creator, we have to become givers as opposed to takers. A person comes to Olam Haba, and if he's, a, if he's a taker, he cannot partake of Olam Haba. Because Olam Haba is connecting to Hashem, and Hashem is a giver, not a taker. And this is what Rebessa writes. This is all, all of life is about this challenge. I present to you that the most basic and the most powerful and the most difficult opportunity that you were going to have to become that being that we're supposed to become, being a giver, is through the process called marriage. Because what are we asked to do in a marriage? We're asked to give time. Yes. We're asked to give money. Yes. Right? Husbands to wives, wives to husbands. But we're asked to give something which is even more basic than that. And I think that's where it gets to, to the core. Let's go back to the creation of the world. Kodesh created the world and he creates Adam. He creates man. He wants a relationship with man. He wants to connect with him. Well, you cannot connect with man unless man is an independent existence. So Shem created man with independent existence. Seemingly, we, seemingly we, we exist independent of our creator. The reality is we know that that's not really true. The Raman says that all, the Raman explains that he's the source of all existence. He's called Havaya because he's the source of all existence. It means we only exist by the fact that he's constantly willing that we should exist. So you don't really exist in a certain sense. But we perceive that we exist. Why does Shem do that? Because he wants to have a relationship with us. And if we don't exist, we don't, we don't exist as something independent, how can you have a relationship? So man is created to have independent existence. Our most basic, Yetzirah, our most basic primordial need is to feel that we exist. Adam is asked to create his relationship with his creator and connect to his creator. How do you connect by taking away from your existence. I feel that I want to do something a certain way. It sh- I feel it should be right this way. I want it a certain way. And I, some way I give up of that independence and I give it to somebody else. So I give it to my creator. He says, don't eat from the, the Eitzadat. And I do. What am I doing? I'm scared by, by giving in I'm, I'm giving away of my thought process. Of my, the most intrinsic part of my being is how do I think? What do I think is important? What do I think is... How, that's me. We have a conversation and I have a way that I look at something. I have a certain way to see something, a certain way to understand something and somebody else tells me, no, it's not like that. 
but this is how I see it. This is how I feel. This is how I understand. This is intrinsic to my being. This is the way I view life. This is the way it, 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 it rings true to my essence. And I'm asked to understand that somebody else can have a totally valid and other way of essence understanding, which is just as valid, or maybe even more valid, than mine. And I'm asked to, as it were, give that away. Now, if we do that, we're taking the most intrinsic part of our being and we're giving it away to somebody else. And we're scared to do that because our most basic need is to exist. And we give away our mind, our thought process. We're taking away our existence and giving it to somebody else. And the paradigm for that is Adam to a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and he's scared to do that. The wife says she has a certain way of looking at something. Husband, no, 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 that's not the way it is. And the husband says, you know what, maybe she has a valid point. Maybe she's, maybe she's right. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I, she sees it better than I do. Very challenging, especially for men. I mentioned earlier that the word me is the Russian Tavis. It's an acronym for the word male ego. Me, right? Male ego. Men like having control. Like, you know, you're tra- we, uh, not all men, but most. Like, when you're driving somewhere, the guy says, I want to drive. Why do you want to drive? I have control of the car. <laughs> My wife says, okay, fine. Just the heck. There's a, um, a person in Toronto, uh, Rebario Pemensky. He does a... Does, classes in Shalom Bayes, etc. And he's giving his class in Shalom Bayes. And he says he does this regularly. He'll have four or five couples who come and put the men on one side, put the ladies on the other side. Okay, he says, okay, before we start the first session, he says, I have a few, few questions I want to be answered. The ladies will do it as one group. Men will do it as another group. And he gives them this list of four or five questions about marriage, etc. And they, the men collaborate together, women collaborate together. After 15 minutes, he says, okay, ladies, gentlemen, are you ready? Yes, gentlemen, ladies first. Ladies, please pick a spokesperson. So they pick Leah, let's say. Leah, okay. Leah gets up. And he says, Leah, before we start, one second. Uh, what are the names of the women in your group? She says, oh, this is Rachel, this is, this is, this is Rivka, this is Sora, this is... This is Kaya. Right? Okay, what do they do? Tell me something about it. Oh, she's, she's, she's a soccer mom, you know, etc., etc., etc. Good that she answers her questions. Then he goes to the men. He says, the men. Okay, Boruch is the spokesperson. Boruch stands up. He says, Boruch, what are the name, names of the people in your group? He says, I don't know. I have no idea. Okay. How long did it take you to answer the questions? Now, the questions are, are, are time to take about five to seven minutes. He says, five, five minutes. He says, so what did you do for the other ten minutes? We spoke about sports. We spoke about fishing. We spoke about anything under the world, but not the people's names. She says, I, as I present to you that women are relationship-oriented beings and men are not. She says it works every time. That's the scary part about it. It works every time. So, Kodesh Prophet made us different. And, and he made us badafka different. It's a Pesach based on a Pesach in Eoi. Hashem makes Shalom be Mermov. So Hashem, the Medr says, just like in Shemayim, Hashem takes the Malach of Eish and the, the, the Malach of Mayim and allows them to coexist. Fire and water can coexist in Shemayim. Now, so what does it mean 
that there's shalom, there's peace between the, the Malach and Shemayim, a fire and the Malach and Shemayim of, of water. So, so we, we'll end, we end up with lukewarm water. It's like the compromise, right? We end up with a, like a half-baked fire, right? What does shalom mean? It says, after the shalom, the, the Malach of Esh is still the Malach of Esh. And the Malach of Mayim is still the Malach of Mayim. And they're able to coexist. Shalom does not mean that you take, take your being and you make and, and you and you in some way lose your st- sense of reality, a being. But you find a way to coexist with somebody else. So I have to tell you a beautiful story. I was um, traveling to a Talmud's hospital, and so it was, it was in it was in the Muncie area, and figuring how to get there, I, I wasn't I wasn't able to take my car, so I took a train from Silver Spring to. Taking a train doesn't really get you to Muncie, but there's a train. I took a train to the Newark uh, airport, with the one that's one of the stops on the Amtrak. And the, the, the logic behind that was that there was a, the party, the 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 party coming in from Chicago, was staying there by the airport. That's where they were staying, and there was a bus which was, they had chartered to go from there to the Chasna Muncie. So you get on this bus, and there's 35 people on the bus. 34 of them are coming from Chicago and are, fr- are friends of the, the, the Hussens family and me. So what happens is this nice big bus that holds 50-something people and the thir- 34 of those people all go by themselves and ignore me totally. Okay, great. So I'm in this bus for an hour and a half. It's an hour and a half, an hour, two-hour ride to be totally ignored for two hours. Now, it's not the end of the world, but I like talking to people. So I said, I'm going to talk to the bus driver. It's Monty Tours, so it's a nice Jewish guy. So I'll schmooze with the guy. So I start schmoozing with the bus driver. We have a schmooze for an, we have the schmooze the whole way up. We end up schmoozing with a fellow. Fascinating fellow. So this fellow tells me the following story. That he, for a period of time, was the driver for a person named Rabbi Israel Tauber. Rabbi Israel Tauber Shlita lives in Monty. Phenomenal speaker, tremendous Tamachotum, businessman, etc. And he was his personal driver for many years. He says, okay, you know, he started to tell me some things that he's taught you, he said, he shared with you. He says, I'll tell you the following thought. He says, I have some shalom bias challenges with my wife. He says, that's why I do the long distance drives for monthly tours. He says, you know, you know, I go away for a few days, she misses me, I come home for the first day or two, it's pretty good. It starts deteriorating again, I get on the bus and I leave again for a few days. So that's, that's my approach. He said, Robert Tower did not like that idea. He says, let's see if we can come up with something a little bit better. So Ritarba says to him the following. He says, have you ever seen how you polish diamonds? He says, no, never seen how you polish diamonds. He says, well, I'll tell you that, that you take a person who's an expert and you take a raw diamond. The raw diamond does not look anything like a river, what we see in a diamond. And he puts it in a vise and the, he puts it in perfectly the right way. And he puts tremendous pressure on this raw diamond and it cracks the raw diamond into two. That's the first step. Okay, now they have to polish the diamond. Now the problem is that a diamond is the hardest substance which is known to man. So what do you polish a diamond with? You polish a diamond with another diamond. Which other diamond? The two halves of this original diamond, because they're perfect opposites. So as you take the two halves of the diamond and you rub them against each other, and the result is a polished diamond. Kharshbrook takes Adam and Kava, rips them apart perfectly, rubs them against each other, and the final result is polished diamonds. 
the point we're saying over here is that, there's, it's, it's, that I have this mistake constantly. I'll have a, I'll have a couple or an individual of a couple will come to me for discuss Shalom Bayes issues. And his first issue is why are we having issues? Like nobody else has any problems in their marriage, just we do. Right? I says, why do you say that? Because everybody else, I tell them how it's everything. Like, yeah, marriage is going great. It's wonderful. It's perfect, etc. And just by me, we have issues. I said, you know, if I have five people say that same phrase to me in a period of two weeks, everybody else is going wonderful. It's just us. It means there's something wrong with that sentence, right? Everybody has challenges. Is, that, is there something wrong with that? And the answer is no. There's something right with that. We, we grow through the fact that we rub against each other. There's a fascinating study. There's a, there's a, there's a professor, um, his name is John Mordechai Gutman. He's a Froome, Froome psychologist, lives in the Philadelphia area. And his field is, in a, in a secular, secular field, is, is happiness in marriage. Trying to, to study the predictors of marriages which will last. What are the indicators of how it, doing the quote with the marriage right that you know that your marriage is going to last? And he's been, he's been following these different families and some of these for, for 20, 30 years. And he has them fill out different questionnaires, different things that he's developed. And he's found, and I'm not saying this is the correct ratio for a from couple, but he's found that the, the best predictor for a marriage which will be stable and which will last in the long term is a ratio of five positive interactions to one negative. Five positive to one negative. He says if he finds that there's less positive to, to negative, that's going to be a challenge. You know, if it's one positive, one negative, that's not going to be great. It's going to undermine the stability of the marriage. But he also found if it's 10 to 1, it's also going to undermine the stability of the marriage. The best ratio which lasts is 5 to 1. Now, I don't know whether that, again, I don't know if that's true for firm couples, and I don't know. But let's understand that. Why is that? So we understand why you need positive ones. Why do you need the negative one? He's saying, you know, so now I'm not saying you should go home and say, listen, okay, husband, you know, uh, wife, you know, it's been five good ones. Let's have a, let's have a fight. I'm not suggesting that. I mean, I mean, if you want to, you could. But, um, you know, but uh, I've just been waiting for that opportunity. I finally remember Angle said it's okay. Um, but I'm not saying that. But, what I, but what's, what's the shot? Why is it like that? Why is it that the, you need, that the negative is intrinsic into the relationship to make it work? So he suggests the following. Again, this is his suggestion. I can't tell you, you know, I mean, this is what, based on his research, he feels it's always says, because that if you will find that, let's say it's 10 to 1, what's happening usually is one of the partners is submerging their personality. And they're not really addressing their emotional needs. They're just being mabater instead of addressing their needs. And that's eventually going to explode. It's 10 to 1, it's 20 to 1, but that 1 is horrible. And the one is unexpected. That one comes out in a, in a strong way because it's, it's the feeling of I, I'm being submerged. My existence is being challenged. So what's the right way of doing it? There's a, so there's a fascinating uh, Rambam, the Rambam in, the, in Hilchot Deot, and the Ramban in Chumash. There's a mitzvah of Hercheach Tochiach et Amiyateka. So what does that mitzvah mean? Everybody knows you give, give a person musr, give a rebuke, reproof. Well, it's not how the Rambam, that's not how the Ramban understand that mitzvah. They understand that mitzvah in the following way. That if a person does something which bothers you, 
don't hold it in, speak to them about it. Hachiach means to show them, prove it. The word is prove. Prove why you think what they've done is incorrect. And let them prove back to you why they might think that they are correct. With an open mind, obviously. It doesn't mean attacking them. The problem which we have is that we're, we are embarrassed and uncomfortable to say that things bother us. Because usually the things that bother us are so seemingly minimal and insignificant that it's embar- we're embarrassed to say that they bother us. You know, there's this horrible joke about a couple comes to the rabbi, they have a shalom bias issue, right? You know, and they're thinking about, you know, that they have to separate, etc. And the rabbi says, you know, let's see, let's talk about it. I said, no, rabbi, we can't do anything about it. You know, it's, 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 too, it's too far gone. He says, you know, it's, it's a, please, let's try to talk about it. He says, rabbi, you know, it's, says, what's the issue? Oh, the issue is that I'm a roller and she's a squeezer. He said, huh? What's a roller and a squeezer? He says, you know, there's two ways to deal with toothpaste tubes. You can roll them up. It's nice and neat, etc. There's people who squeeze it and make this mess, and I can't deal with it anymore, Rabbi. I'm done. Right? Really, that, you know, it really bothers you that you know the, the toothpaste is messy. It's very embarrassing to admit that it bothers you the toothpaste is messy. Like how how petty are you that what bothers you is toothpaste? So we don't we leave it in. We don't. Right? There's a story. Dale, Dale Carnegie has a story in one of his books about a group of scientists goes to Antarctica. And um, so Antarctica, you don't fly there. You don't drive there. You come by boat. Now, the, the port, port where you get into is ice free for about two, two to three months of the year. And then you're there for the next nine, ten months. And now you live underground because you cannot live above ground. So they have this underground cavern where the scientists who go there live. So you're going to spend this group of 50, 60, 70 people going on the different, researching different, different elements, different ideas, different issues, go together as a group, and they spend the next 10 months together in this underground cavern. And they go out for expeditions once in a while, but basically they're together with the same people for 10 months. Now, they're scientists, so they have their idiosyncrasies. No, no insult to any scientists you know, indicated over here, but they're scientists. Scientists have idiosyncrasies, right? That's why they're scientists, right? So, um, so this is a true story. So he's writing the, 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 the... So scientist A sits down to breakfast the first day that they're there, across from scientist B, and scientist B, his field is nutrition. And he's decided that for a person to... to be able to, and I guess he's studying nutrition under adverse circumstances, and that's why he's here, etc. Fine. And he says, for a person to have an optimal uh, benefit from his food, he has to chew every morsel 42 times. So this person puts a morsel in his mouth and chews it 42 times. This is scientist B. Scientist A is across from this fellow who's chewing every bite 42 times, and it's getting on his nerves. Right? So... Now, of course, he's not going to admit that. Like, you know, like, what do you, what's about the fact that I chew the food? Like, what's your business? But the mice say, well, this, right? But he can't admit it because that's like, you know, he's petty. So they come to lunch. He's not going to move his seat. So lunch, it happens again. For 10 months, the fellow who's writing the story, Scientist A, says at the end of 10 months, it took every ounce of his self-control not to commit murder. <laughs> This is a true story, right? So something happens and it bothers you. 
and you don't say anything about it because, like, it's petty, you know. And we, you know, we learn Musser, we learn things like, you're going to admit that this bothers you, like, you know. You have to move on. You have to, you have to get over it, and you have to, but you don't. Then it happens again. So you have this, you know, it's, a, it's petty. So you have, a person takes like a wound and he has this little scratch and takes his fingernail and scratches it very lightly on his skin. 3,000 times. What happens? There's this wound with pus coming out of it. It's just this light thing. 3,000 times, it's a festering wound. Okay, so what am I saying? So I'm saying you should have fights with your husband. You should have fights with your wife. Now, I'm not saying that. But if something bothers you, you have two options. You have an option to really, really, truly don't get past it. Right? uh, One suggestion which I had, I mean, you know, you you can have your different suggestions. But let's say I I had something that bothered me. And so when I I went from Silver Spring, went from Cleveland to Silver Spring, this is 20 year anniversary, we were finishing 20, 20 years in Silver Spring in August 1997. So I moved from, I was in Tel Shiva for 23 years. Now, if you're familiar with Tel Shiva, Tel Shiva is like this own self-enclosed, self-contained, beautiful world of only Torah and mitzvahs, etc. And I'm moving into a regular community. It's very nice, it's beautiful, etc. But it's definitely not the rarefied atmosphere of Tel Shiva. So I'm there for the, the I move in the summer, I'm there for the Yom and the Royim, and I go back to Cleveland to visit family for Sukkot. So I go to visit my Rosh Yeshiva, Rabbi Chaim Stein, So I go to visit him. So he asks me, how's it going? So I start crutching. You know, no, it's not this, not that. So I'm two minutes, into, I'm two sentences, three sentences into my crutch. And he interrupts me. He says, is it, 80, is it 80% good? He says, yes, it's 80% good. He says, you know what? You don't find better than 80% in life. What are you learning? Let's talk. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. End of the crutch. You know, no more crutching. Let's talk and learning, which we did. And that was the end of the conversation. So I'm, I'm, I'm there, Baruch Hashem, for 20 years, and I've lived on the 80% rule. It's never going to be perfect. It's not supposed to be perfect. It's supposed to be challenging. It's supposed to be something that you're going to have to work on yourself. That's what makes you grow as a human being. That's what makes you a giver. That's what makes you focus on somebody else. So I'm in a situation which is so, seems, you know, I'm thinking about it, it's like, you know, am I gonna let the, I'm going to come to Shemayim after 20 years and say, you know, it says, on the, they're going to say to me in Shemayim, you know, it says in the Rambam, a person has a chiv to honor his wife more than himself. And you do not honor your wife more than yourself in the situation, you did something wrong. So, well, you know, what do you want? She squeezed a toothpaste. They're going to laugh me out of Bez and Shemayim. They're going to, you know, like, you know, for this, you, were, you did an Avera, you know, like, really? So I picture that, that scenario, and after, by the time I picture the laughter, like after two sentences of the, the Malachim laughing at me, I'm not interested anymore. Like, you know, it's not worth it. You know, I, I'm not going to do this, you know. So that's my approach. You know, you can use yours. But here we are, and the, things bother us. We have an option. We have an option, number one, of really, the Ramam says, you have a right option to say, make it not bother you. But if it does bother you, and you don't find a way to discuss it, to let the other person explain themselves, or point it out to them so they can correct it, or to apologize, but you keep it in you, but it, bother, it truly bothers you, but you're embarrassed, you're not doing the other person a favor, you're actually hurting the other person. Because eventually it's going to bother you to the point that it's going to come out, and it's come out not the way you want it to. Because by the 25th time, you're going to be so upset. How can you? Like, whoa, where are you coming from? I didn't expect. What did I do wrong? Uh, you, uh, whatever, right? 
But the other person doesn't realize that there's all these signs behind it. Now, there's, there's this um, book, The One Minute Manager. One of the things they talk about the day about being a good manager is, you know, make sure that you discuss with, with your employees when something is not going the way it's supposed to. Many, many managers are uncomfortable of doing that. It's not comfortable to have a conversation with an employee about things that are not going correctly. So he pushes it off. Meanwhile, it happens again and it happens again. And by the time he finally addresses it, he's so upset that it comes out much more intensely than he wants to do. And the result is that it damages the relationship between the employer and the employee. So if that's true, Kabbalah bent between a husband and a wife. So our point up to this point is that having difficulty between two individuals is correct. It's supposed to be like that. I, I ask you, you take two persons with their, their personalities are different, their natures are different, their upbringing is different, you put them in the same roof 24-7, 365, there's not going to be challenges. What are, who's being, what are, we being, are we being realistic? But more than that, this is what makes us grow. This is, it's, the Russian made us like that specifically. It makes us learn to be aware of the other person and to learn to see the validity of somebody else's approach. And we, and we learn to discuss it. The Chazanish writes, he's writing to the, uh, a letter to a person who's getting married, to a Chatan, and he writes to him that the mission talks about Altarba Sikha the person should not spend his wife, his life away just schmoozing with his wife. That's Yiddish, schmooze. Okay, right? That's okay, right? So, um, he says it doesn't apply when a person needs piyus, needs piyus. He says, That's part of the nature of the first year of marriage is they need to spend, connect, they need to connect. We touch others through speech. We need to find time to talk to each other. We touch, others through, we touch each other through speech. It's one of the most intrinsic ways of connecting to somebody, which is it's almost as intense as physical touch, is to, to talk to each other. It doesn't have to be deep conversation. I once heard from Rebusha Einstein in, in Cleveland, Ohio, in the name of Lichtenstein's itself, that he said, what's the difference between siach and sicha? Siach means deep, deep, intelligent conversation. Sicha means light talk. So the Mishnah is in Altabra Sicha, this light, frivolous talk, and that's what the Chazich is telling you, that, that, that is necessary, Shana Rishana. My only addendum to that sentence is, and nowadays, Shana Rishana lasts for at least the first 25 years. Okay, um, that's my addendum to that, that thought process. So it's important to make time to talk. So that's the second point. My third point is, you know, there's this famous piece of advice. Don't go to sleep angry. Right? My advice is go to sleep. Go to sleep. Why? I, this is based on um, some research that I've done, personal and otherwise. You're late at night, you're exhausted, and your mind is stuck. So you have the conversation again and again and again and again. It doesn't go anywhere. What's fascinating is you go to bed, you wake up the next morning, you see the world in a whole new view, and you know what? It doesn't bother you anymore. 
So whoever made up this world, you can't go to sleep being angry at each other. And therefore you kept me up for the last three hours of, of time wasted because it didn't work anyway. Well, I can just go to sleep and wake up five, six hours from now and the problem is solved automatically. Why, who, who gave you the right to torture me by making this rule? That's my, re- that's my reaction to that sentence, to that, that, that thought process. Okay, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, I don't know, but it, it, it seems to me like we do find that we have a new view of something after a good night's sleep. So why are we torturing each other? Okay, I mean, I'm not saying, you, you know, listen, Rangel said, you know, let's go to bed angry. I'm not saying that, you know, but we can agree to disagree, and we'll figure out, we'll, we'll work it out better when we have a new perspective, which is going to come in, in the morrow. I'm not sure that counts as a separate point, but I just, it's, it's something which, it's my, my, my pet peeves. Like, I don't know who made that rule. I, I do not find it in the, in the Rambam, I have to tell you. It's not in Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch. Uh, the, the earliest I found it was in Mrs. Ruchama Shane's book, right? Now, for her it worked well, because she said, you know, they once had this fight between her and her husband. She says, her husband, you know, Moshe, you know, her name is Moshe, she says, Moshe says, you know, like, you know, we can't, we, I want to go to sleep, I'm really tired, would you mind? Let's make up because we can't go sleep being angry. He said, yes. She says, yes. For them it works. You know, they were able to, you know, be because they want to go to sleep. Most of us doesn't work like that. We go, we do it, but yeah, but, there's always that yeah, but. You know what that means. Yes, I, I'm welcoming you, and, I, and please welcome me, but I just have to explain one more time why I'm right. You know, thank you. you know, so, for all of us plebeians, you know, that, 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 that I thought process doesn't work for, I'm not sure why Mr. Shane's suggestion has to be for us. Um, I once heard from Rosh Aaron Stern, the Mashkiach of the Kamas Hashiva, that he says that, you know, just like there's something called AAA, AAA is, you know, cars have got a problem, so you call AAA and they, take, they, they bring the solution, they bring the. So in marriage also there's a, there's a AAA. He's talking to men. So I'm going to give you what he said to the men, what they have to do for the women. And again, this is what the men's side is supposed to listen to. Then I'm going to give it to you what my wife's response was, what the women, what the, what the men needed in a marriage, and the women should do that for the men. Okay. He said that, that he says to the men, women need a triple A, attention, appreciation, and affection. So if you give your wife attention, appreciation, and affection, make that so easy, right? You'll have a good marriage. Good Baruch Hashem. Now those deserve to be explained, and I'm gonna, I want to go back to one or two of them for a moment. But then my wife said, "Okay, so what?" Uh, says, "What do the men need in the marriage?" I says, "What do you think?" She says, "KKK." I says, "What does KKK stand for?" She says, "Covered, covered, and covered." I said, "You got it. Yes, <laughs> right, 100 percent correct. Right. That uh, um, there is a." One of the Rebbeim, Rashiva in Philadelphia, Yeshiva, his name was Remendel. Remendel was once walking with um, one of his Tamidim, and they're walking by a tree, and there was two birds in the tree. And one of the birds was, was chirping vociferously, and the other one was, you know, every once in a while was just giving it one chirp back. It was like, chirp, 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 etc. So he says to his Talmud, you know, he says, what's happening over here? He says, I'll tell you. He says, that one is a man. 
And he's saying, I'm so powerful that I could go down and knock over that human being over there. And the other one's the woman, she says, yes. Then he says, I'm so powerful I could knock down this tree if I wanted to. And the other one, the woman says, yes. And he says, you know, he says, that was his description of what's happening over here between the two birds. Right? Now, I can't tell you what his, whether his interpretation of the birds chirping was actually true or not, but the message is definitely true. That's what the man says. And the woman says, yes. The man feels his wife respects him, and he's very happy. Okay, so man's needs are very easy to, very easy to fill. Uh, I want to point out the idea of appreciation. Right? I want to point out the idea of, of attention. Um, husband wife, husband comes home, and he's been waiting for a very, very important letter. A very important letter, he's been waiting for quite some time, sits down to supper, and there's this whole pile of mail. He gets a lot of mail. He's a rabbi. He gets a lot of mail. And his wife's talking to him, and he's flipping through the mail as the wife is talking to him. And the wife says to the husband, you're not listening to me. The husband says, yes, I am. He says, I'll prove it to you. And he repeats verbatim, at literatum, every word that she just said. She says, yes, but you're not listening to me. And the man says, I don't get it. It's impossible. I just prove it to you without, beyond the shadow of a doubt that I'm listening to you. I just, I, it's impossible for me to re- repeat verbatim what you said if I wasn't listening to you. I've proven to you that I was listening to you. And the woman says, yes, but you're not listening to me. So what's the problem? The problem is, we said there's two ways to look at the world. And when we say, we, you know, men are, now again, this is saying in generalities, Right? There's an element of logic being used over here. There's an element of feeling. Feeling doesn't mean just emotion. It means being able to feel it with the five senses. That's what feeling is. The woman's need is to be able to feel that you're listening. You're listening. Well, how do you give that? You give it by? So I, I said, here, here's the example, okay? You have... You have a, a woman listening to a listen, listening to a phone conversation. I mean, somebody's talking to her, and she's listening. And you hear, you just hear, you're standing next to the woman, hearing the receiving end. <gasps> really, Abarak Hashem, Chaste Hashem. I can't believe it. Okay, now second scenario: you're hearing a man receiving a phone call. Yeah. I'm still here. Right. Feedback. Men are phenomenal giving no feedback. When I speak to a woman's group, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a there's a word it's a fargenigan. It's 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 such a pleasure. You get feedback. You have feedback in their faces, in their smiles, and they're nodding their heads, and they're into it, etc. You can hear it to men like like this. And I was like, wow, that was like really Yishma, you know. I, Rabbi, we enjoyed your speech so much. They tell me afterwards, I say like, thank you. I appreciate it. You couldn't have given us any feedback while you were listening? I have no idea that people are, they're really, they're, they've trained themselves to be able to space out and think about something else and look like they're looking at me. You know, they're actually sleeping with their eyes open. I, don't, I have no idea, like, you know, there's no feedback. Right? Now, this is, now I, I, I happen to be a person who likes feedback also, you know, but feeling that you're listening is different than actually listening. It's not enough that you're listening, you have to be able to feel that you're listening. 
So attention means attention. There's a story with the Shilsalantar. The Shilsalantar was traveling together with another Talmud Chacham, and they were going for a purpose of a mitzvah, pinyon shvuyim, whatever it was, and they come to an inn. They come to an inn, and the hostess realizes that she's dealing with Rabbi Shilsalantar and this other Talmud Chacham, and she's so excited, so instead of having her, the, the, the wait staff, she herself, the proprietress herself, feeds, serves these two gadolim. And she's so excited. And she, while she's talking to Rishosalantar, to, to Rishosalantar is and she's telling him about, you know, they live in this inn out on the, on the, along the way and somewhere in, the, somewhere in the provincial area, so they have their own farm and they have their own geese and their own chickens and their own etc. She's telling them about the problems that she has with the chickens, you know. Rishosalantar is discussing chickens with her and then they're discussing, you know, a little bit about the cow, you know, the cow lately has been a little bit difficult, you know, etc. And he's talking about cows with her, etc. The other Chacham is busy thinking and learning. You know. It comes time for them to leave. So they want to pay. And she says, no, it was, it was my, I, ple- I refuse to take any money. It was my sukhut to be able to serve you, etc. Okay. So, so that is her kavod, that they should, should not be paid. And she's very happy. She walk, they walk out. Yusuf says to the other Chacham, he says, uh, you know, I think you have a problem with Zayla over here. He says, what do you mean? You didn't pay for your, he says, you didn't pay for your meal. He says, but she said that she doesn't want me to pay. She says, no. What, what was she saying? He's saying that I paid her by showing interest in her life. And, she, and she felt so good that I'm giving her that interest and focus that uh, this big gadol is talking to her and focusing on her. So I paid her. But what did you pay her? You ignored her the whole time. How did you pay her? That's, that's, a, that's, that's how the story goes. So I once heard from one of my chaverim, Rabbi Ruben Gerson in Cleveland. He says, so let's understand the story. Let's get the story straight. And he says, because there's a mistake in the understanding of the story. The, the, the understanding seems to be that Rabbi Sosalantar was not really interested in chickens or cows either. But he's a nice guy. So he gave her the impression that he's interested in her cows and her chickens, etc. And now she felt better. So he was also over. He was over that. He fooled her. Right? So why is he any better than the other, other Gadol? The answer is that that's not true. He was phenomenally interested in her cows and her chickens. Because she was important to him. And therefore what's important to her was also important to him. Now, it wasn't like he was, he was walks around and does interesting studies about cows and chickens. But it was important to her, it was important to him. And he wanted to hear what she had to say. This is very important, not, in the, not only in Shalom but it's also very important in parenting. So, you know, father's very busy, woman's, mother's very busy, you know, a, lot of, a lot of kids running around, etc. The kids, they want to tell you about, you know, the, the frog they found in the backyard. And this is the 15th time they're telling you about this frog. You know, and, you know, the frog jumps high. I know that. You told me that yesterday. So, but this time it was really high. Like, you know. So what are you supposed to do? The answer for this child, that's important. And the child is important to you. So what's important to the child is also important to you. Yes, you have to train him at some point in time to figure out, you know, if, 
you, he, he walks in the door and the parent is talking a very important conversation with somebody and he interrupts, you have to train him not to interrupt. But for that child, that's very important. Rodessa writes in one place, he says that, you know, he's talking about there's a child who was playing with his play boat in the tub and it sunk. And he was like, just, you know, his boat sunk. He's like, just devastated that his boat sunk. He comes tell you, my boat sunk? He says, for the child, the boat sinking is the same level of trauma, his toy boat sinking in the tub, the same level of trauma of a businessman who has this, this, this large amount of cargo in, on his boat, which went down also. It's the same level of trauma. In the same way you would empathize well, this person wants to, you know, Rabbi, you know, says, I just lost my boat at sea with, you know, my 23 sailors, and, you know, a terrible tragedy. You would empathize with him. So the child losing the boat in the tub is about the same level. That's the right. We don't look at it like that because we don't see the world from a child's vantage point. Well, that's true from husbands and wives. Where the woman is seeing the, the, the world from, where the man is seeing the world from, the woman says, like, why are you getting so bothered by it? Why does it bother you so much? The husband says, why does it bother you so much? Well, from their vantage point, it does bother them so much. You have to look to see the world from their vantage point. We're giving our mind to them. How much time do we have? Okay. Okay, one last point. Um, I said this over once. I was giving a speech about Shalom Bayit in, in a different city. And there's this very prominent C, uh, vice president of a, uh, of a multi-billion dollar company, corporation sitting in the front row. And I said the story, and the poor man started laughing so hard I thought he was going to choke. I, like, I, had him on, I had him on the floor. I was like, wow, I know what's going on in his house. Um, so here's the story. This is focused toward the men, but we'll, we'll to talk about the, the direction. Okay? So wife goes to the store. She comes home with three dresses. You know, but we have very liberal return policy in the United States of America, you know, not like other countries. So the plan was she's going to bring home three dresses. She'll try them on for her husband. And the one that he likes, she'll keep. And the other two she'll return. So she tries on the first dress, the second dress, the third dress. Now the poor husband doesn't see the difference between the dresses. They all look the same. The first dress, the bow, was on the left side. The second dress, the bow was on the right side. The third dress, the bow was in the middle. He says he has no idea what the difference is. They all look exactly the same thing. Now, but he's not, he's not stupid. He says, you know what? Let's get some brownie points. So he says to his wife, my dear wife, you are so gorgeous and so beautiful. Whatever you wear looks nice. And the wife says, you don't like the dresses. When I said that line, this poor man was on the floor. So I know what happens in his house. Right? So what's the mistake? What did he do wrong? He says, like, well, guess, you know, he's, you know, this individual has been married at that point in time about 40 years. He's trying to feel like, okay, you know, he's, he's been scratching his head for 40 years. What's he been doing wrong? Now, they, they, they attribute to, I'm not saying it about him, they attribute to Einstein a, a, a saying which has been supposed to prove that it's not Einstein, but insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get different results. 
I think for many people who are married, it's probably they meet that criteria of the definition of insanity. Right? They do the same thing over and over again. They have the same lines. You know, if, I, sometimes I, I, I suggest, I recently was talking to an individual who was dealing with a situation where the person was in a machloket, and he was a sounding board for, for one of the parties. He said, every day the fellow would call me. You know, I'd put the phone on mute. I would make another phone call. And he would just say the same things again and again and again, every day. Every once in a while I would unmute it and I would say, mm-hmm, yes. And I'd mute it again and go, do I have to mind my, my business? And he would hear his voice saying the same lines again and again and again. That doesn't happen in marriage. Doesn't ha- it doesn't happen in parenting. I've told you a thousand times. If you actually have told a person a thousand times, so why, why do you think it's going to happen to me any different this time? Isn't that insane? You know, like, let's try a different approach. You know, I, you know, I mean, I just, you know, just thought process over here. Okay, so what's the mistake? The mistake is the husband thought the reason why the wife bought new dresses is because she likes new dresses. He didn't realize that she bought the new dress because she wants to please her husband. So here, this woman is coming and, as it were, making an offering to her husband of something. She wants to give him something. He's saying, no, I'm not interested not important to me. What would you like for supper, dear? Whatever. No, no, I want to make you happy, right? No, whatever you make is fine. She said she wants to make you happy. So let her make her happy, make you happy. Now, I always warn the guys when I tell them, tell them this, is listen, bitch, make sure you, uh, I, said, I would love hamburgers. Oh, we don't have any hamburger meat. I feel so bad. You want hamburgers? There's no hamburger meat in the house. I'll go out and get it. Like, no, 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 no. I just said hamburgers. Just because I want, like, oh, no. Before you answer the question, say, what are the choices? <laughs> You know, just, you know, a little bit of seichel over here. So, okay, so you say, you know, and vice versa, right? Uh, the, the, you know, the, the husband comes home and the wife, you know, was, you know, the husband walks in the house and says, do you like it? He says, hmm, okay, I'm supposed to notice something different. Um, she's wearing the same clothes. Okay, it's not that. Um, you know. It's like, do I get 20 questions? Like, like finally, you know, she's, you know, he's like looking around, like, what's different? She says, you know, I moved that plant from that corner to that corner. She didn't move that plant from that corner. She, she didn't ask you about it because she did it for herself. She wants you to like it. She thought you would enjoy it better than the corner. You say, hmm, I didn't know we had a plant. <laughs> Um, so this is part of the challenge that we have. We see the world differently. Right? And it was important to her, it's important to you. It was important to him, it's important to you. He's come home and he wants to discuss, you know, what happened, whatever, whatever situation, you know, whatever it is, right? right? The wife's like, you know, every day he comes home from work and I hear the same stories. What's he saying? He's saying, I want my wife to share my life. This is my life. And she's just hearing, I'm bored of these same stories. That's all she's hearing. Right? Or he, he's saying he went out and did something, and he's trying to say, I did it to make you happy. And she's like, it doesn't make me happy. It doesn't, doesn't help me. Right? We don't always get in the wavelength of what the other person wants. And that's our, that's our challenge, is to start seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. Now, when we're successful doing it with our wife, we can do it with our kids. Because we learn to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And we can do it with our kids, and we can do it with our neighbors, and we can do it with Claudia. So, 
I'm going to end with one beautiful story, which is not about Shalom Bayez. Um, about what it means to, to, to the ability to empathize and to focus and see the world through somebody else's eyes. And this is a personal story. Uh, my wife and I went through a, uh, a, a situation many years ago, and we went to see the square Rebbe, Shlita. This is in um, 1986. And we went back to see him again in 1987, and then I had not went back to see him for many years. In the year 2004, one of the rebellion from our yeshiva takes the eighth grade to, to New Square for a Shabbaton. And Matsi Shabbos, he takes the boys into the Rebbe, and the, the, the Rebbe gave 45 minutes for the boys, which is a phenomenal amount of time, if you're familiar with how Rebbe's work. And each boy got a private conversation with the Rebbe, and then the Rebbe, who was bringing, taking the group there, had a conversation with the Rebbe. The Rebbe wanted to hear about the yeshiva. Uh, he actually gave a donation to the yeshiva. Like, this, you know, you visit him, he comes to his new square, and he gives you a $200 donation to the yeshiva that you came from. That's very nice. And he starts going through, who are the Rebbeim and the yeshiva? So he goes to this name, this name, and he says, says Eli Reinhold. He says, I have a Yedidus, I have a friendship relationship with, Rebbe, with Eli Reinhold. Now, mind you, I was by the Rebbe twice, 1987, 1986, 1987. It's now 17 years later. The Rebbe sees, during the Yom and the Royim itself, between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, they estimate he sees close to 10,000 people. Of his Hasidim. I'm not one of his Hasidim. I'm a Litvak, all the way. I, I went to see him twice. It's 17 years later, and he says, I have a friendship with Eli Reinhold. So he comes back, the Rebbe comes back to Silver Spring, the next day he says, Ellie, like, what's your connection to the square Rebbe? I said, I don't know. Like, you know, I was there 17 years ago. She says, he tells me the story, and I'm just like, I'm blown away. He says, you know, if we have a friendship, I have to go visit my friend. So I made up with my wife, we're going to go spend the Shabbos in Muncie. And Thursday night, I went into the Rebbe. Now, this is, this is only a Litvak would do. A Chassar would ever do this. So I walk into the Rebbe, I, I, I'm thinking about it. I can't imagine how I did this. Anyway, but I did it. I, I said, you know, I go into the Rebbe, and I asked the Rebbe if the Rebbe remembers why I came. Because I wanted to tell them like, what the result had been. But I asked him, first I asked him that question, and I paused. And he stopped, and he thought, and he told me why I came. From 17 years before. I was blown away. Because I know myself, I'm a busy person, I do a lot of people, somebody comes to discuss something with someone, and the next day I said, you know, it says, well, well, what do you think? About what? <laughs> you know, I don't remember what it, oh, I suppose you said, oh, right, right. Um, what did he say? What did he discuss? Like, you know, I can't remember from yesterday. I can't remember. This is 17 years earlier. The answer is, for those moments, and if a person will ever go, that he actually sees women also. Right? One of the few rabbis who does. He's focused totally on you. He's to- focused totally on you, and he's focused on your needs. He's getting into your mind. He's seeing the world through your pain. He's empathizing with you. And that's the final goal. That's, that's the giver, that, the final goal that Mithamalia was talking about. That's the process. We, we start as a husband and a wife. We expand it to our children. We expand it to our neighbors. We expand it to Klai Yisrael. 
And that's why marriage is such a phenomenal opportunity because it's so challenging and it's so difficult and it so much forces us to become that giver, to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And that's really what we're supposed to become. Thank you so much for listening. We should always be to have tremendous shalom in our bias.